to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. I'm joined today by the wonderful film critic Kristen Lopez, whose views on films can be heard in numerous podcasts, and you can also read her in numerous publications, including The Hollywood Reporter and RogerEbert.com, to name a few. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm good. You guys getting a, a heat wave there like we're, we're getting here in Toronto? It's uh, It's been hot, yes. I have not been outside, thankfully, a whole heck of a lot, except to walk to my car. So it's been it's been pleasant. I haven't been uh, affected by it too much. Our air conditioner broke today, and uh, apparently the next three days are supposed to be uh, massive heat waves, but I guess this is what they consider first world problems, so I'm not going <laughs> to stress too much about it. But Exactly. My regular co-host, Andrew Hathaway, is on hiatus for the year um, to focus on his writing. He's also got a, producing a video game, so you can still support his work by visiting his website, can'tstopthemovies.com. Uh, we like to start off each episode by highlighting one short film that you can watch online for free. Our short film today is 1982, directed by Jeremy Brousseau. The film follows a writer who's suffering from... Uh, writer's block and while trying to I guess find inspiration he reflects on uh, key moments in his life when he was six years old. Kristen what did you think of this film? This was very weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's very quiet. You don't get a lot of dialogue. What, What dialogue is present is obscured by music a lot. It feels almost like a dark comedy at times even though it's a very bleak story. You know, one minute things will be happening, and then all of a sudden this small child would just try to, like, kill himself. Um, and it was weird. I wasn't really sure what the goal or the intent that we were supposed to get, other than this kid is suffering and probably needs some help. But it was it was definitely interesting. I was not bored. Yeah, for me, the... I think one of the reasons I picked it is, for me, there was a lot of, I guess, through lines to our, our feature film. And just in terms of... I was looking at it in terms of how memory is is captured in this film, and we were really getting fragments of that year, 1982. I agree with you that it, it took me two viewings to get that, you know, this was a, a writer who I guess was struggling with his own parenting, even though I don't think we get enough information about him as as an adult and how he parents his child because there's a moment where the short begins where his son comes in probably had a nightmare or something and he puts him back to bed and by the end you see him reflecting on that moment and not giving his child attention and he's thinking back to when he was a kid and i think some of the some of the stuff that he does when he's a kid i i understand some of the motivations but i also think that because he was young his view of his parents' relationship is also a little skewed, especially in terms of how he treats the mother, if that makes any sense. Yeah, there's there's definitely shades, I think, of, of my own parents' relationship growing up and just in terms of being that child and having to have this perspective that you don't really understand until, until you're an adult. And so I like that. I would have liked more, I would have liked dialogue, I think. But I think dialogue would have really undermined the point of the narrative, which is that you you don't focus on these things until you've lived your life and are able to understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, the a lot of the dialogue is obscured by orchestral music. And it was the second view that I had to really kind of pay attention to what was going on in the background and what were the parents arguing about. And 
the the initial argument focused more on I guess the mother had some big thing planned where I think the father was supposed to look after young Zach and he had his own plans and then as the film goes on it seems like the the point of contention for the the folks is that the husband is essentially cheating on the wife like he's he's never home he goes out for cigarettes and then comes home at like one in the morning and i think that's where a lot of the 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 tension lies but again we don't get enough of their backstory and he's also a bit of an enabler for zach's bad behavior because there's that one scene at the dinner table where you think he's gonna scold him for for acting up and in many ways he's he's encouraging him yeah there's it's interesting to watch kind of the glimpses that we get of the parents parenting style is as you mentioned that yeah the, the mom is far more of a presence in just the fact that she's there or at least perceived to be there more especially at the end when the implication is that they're they're splitting up and and it does make you you know think about those those memories i think most adults have especially children of divorce i don't know where the direct quote is but the concept that many many parents repeat children remember their father as they walked out the door for the last time and i think that the fact that it ends with that sentiment is really telling that is true and his response to his own when, when zach is older his response to his child it makes sense when you, you see the full context of the the short but i never got the idea even from the beginning that he was necessarily a bad father uh, no because we don't get enough it's like you know i've told my children on numerous occasions when they wake, wake up in the middle of the night and try and crawl in bed like you know no go back to your room or you know we'll physically take them and put them back in the room because i'm trying to get my sleep that doesn't necessarily make you a bad parent that's just you know how life goes sometimes and i, I wish we got a little bit more of maybe the conflict with his son so that you at least get that when he comes to that moment of realization and you see that he still care physically is carrying some of those scars that he inflicted on himself it would have made a little more sense one thing though i i really did enjoy about this film is the the technical prowess of it you're very aware of the the camera movement and there's one really great tracking shot which i i still can't figure out how they quite pulled it off where it's zach's having his birthday party and the camera starts in the house and kind of gives you the layout of all the stuff that's going on and then is able to like back into a bouncy castle as zach is climbing in as well it was just a really well done scene and i noticed there's just a lot of camera trickery as they're doing those invisible cuts you you really do feel like you're getting a collage but a stylishly done one. Yeah, I do like that you're getting kind of snippets and fragments, again, mimicking that memory, mimicking the concept of perception, too. Like, when you when you get stuff that's edited like this, you always have to deal with the, the concept of the narrator, you know, and, and whether all of this is true. So I, I thought the editing worked really well. That's all I had to say about this one, because once you take away the dialogue and, you're, and you just have to rely on the visuals, there's only so much that the visuals can tell us but i and again if they had a little more dialogue i think it would have enhanced it but i, I did enjoy it. like it, it did make me think which is always good so yeah that's that's all i had about it is there anything else you want to say i think we got it covered okay well you know what we're going to take a quick minute to change the reels and then we'll be back with our feature film of the day <laughs> 
Our main film for today is Eve's Bayou by Cassie Lemons. Hailed by Roger Ebert as the best film of 1997, the movie tells the story of 10-year-old Eve Baptiste, whose family life begins to unravel after she witnesses her father having an affair. Kristen, do you want to kick us off on this one? Yeah, so I saw Eve's Bayou for the first time this year. Ooh. I actually saw it a couple couple months ago. Okay, so it's, it's really fresh in your memory. Very then. fresh in my mind. I actually watched Cassie Lemon's entire directorial filmography for an article that I wrote about her. And I think the fact that Cassie Lemons is not a director that we know who has not been able to make huge movies is a travesty because her films are very interesting. Not only are they visually intriguing, but they tell of experiences that are extremely geared towards African-American audiences, but are still very interesting and, and worth watching, even if you aren't of that that group. So she has real, I think, real like cross-racial uh, appeal. You know, if you're if you're an executive trying to think of like, well, how is this going to just not play to the niche crowd? I think Cassie Lemons is incredible. So, and this is this is kind of the high point for her career. That's not to say she's made movies that aren't as good. I think this and Talk to Me are are fantastic films. But even something like Caveman's Valentine or what's the other one, Black Nativity, um, they have interesting ideas, even if the execution is not great. But Eve's Bayou is is her, I think, strongest narrative feature, and I just I was wrapped up in it. I was entranced by it. There's so much that you can kind of watch this movie. You can watch this movie straightforward. You can watch it just looking at the acting. You can look at it just looking at the directing or the screenwriting or the emphasis on um, Black culture, specifically religion. All of it's really, really fascinating. Um, I I love that there's magical realism, to use a, a term from, from the Latinx experience. And everybody is great. Every single actor in this movie is so goddamn good so i i enjoy this movie a lot you know for me this was a film that i had back on vhs it's been probably about 15 years since i last watched it and there was one aspect of it because it had been so long that i had made bigger in my mind especially when it came to um, samuel jackson's interaction with the eldest daughter uh, for some reason in my mind i had that being more traumatic than actually was in terms of what is actually portrayed on screen. Which is kind of the point, too. Yeah, it's and again, we're going to be talking a lot about memory and how it shapes and, and changes the, you know, what may have happened and what may not have happened. And I had forgotten how much I loved this film. And it, as you said, the acting is hands down just phenomenal. Like, the kids are great. All the adults are great. Diane Carroll and her brief cameo is great. And they're, they're such just richly crafted characters. Like, I wanted to know a bit more about all of them and, and what they were doing. And I agree with you. We, we talked about Caveman's Valentine, I think, on our second episode of this show. And I don't think it's as strong as this film. I, I still think this is her, her best film. I really do enjoy talk to me and i haven't seen black nativity that's the the one i have black to catch nativity up nativity is very ambitious it is it is easily her most ambitious film and i wish it had embraced the musical a bit more than it does 
But the fact that it's a musical with an all-black cast is is remarkable in itself, considering how rare that still is. Yes, that's true, and especially to get mainstream release yeah. from a studio, that's also very, very good and also very important. And this, I don't even know where to start with this film, because there's so much I want to talk about. Let's, I guess, go with the, the basic stuff with memory. So you have Eve waking up in a car to, to find her that her father is canoodling with a good family friend. But she's instantly told by her older sister that what she saw was not actually what she saw. She just remembered it wrong. And there's a lot of that kind of shifting of what you know and, and what people tell you you think you know. And I want you... So what did you think about that aspect? So there's, you're, you're right that there's so much to unpack here. So the movie starts with Eve, played by Journey Smollett, who up until 97, for me, was always the little best friend to Michelle Tanner on Full House. <laughs> I know she's done more since then, but that's what she will always be forever and ever. I forgot she was in that show. Was, yes, she was Denise. Well, don't even get me started on how Full House was the first show to say, like, I'm not racist. I have black friends. And, and Journey Smollett was one of them. But she's so she's told at the beginning of this movie by her dad because she catches him in, uh, what is it, garage or whatever, seducing another woman. And because that's a lie that could cause problems, she is told by her dad and her, and her sister, played by Megan Good, that she misremembered. And the intentions are somewhat good because the whole concept is you break up a, a happy, seemingly happy home and, you know, all, all of that. But it translates into having grander implications when the film does have the ambiguity of, what has happened between Samuel L. Jackson's character, Louis, and his daughter, his eldest daughter. And at that point, you know, Eve is just very confused because this movie is all about what adults tell children in order to make them compliant and how that ends up really damning people in the long run. Yes, and I would actually take that one step further. I also think it's what adults tell themselves to, to sometimes maintain the illusion of a, of a comfortable family unit because for most of this film, Eve's mother is, is hurting. She's in pain, and it gets to a point where she even starts to inflict physical pain on herself, even if it's subconsciously. And you get the sense that everybody in that community knows that Louis is... A player that he is a man about town but because he's he's got such a well-respected profession a lot of people are willing to to turn a blind eye i think the the only people who probably don't know about louis are the the husbands that whose wives are stepping out on them and it's interesting to see because there's a moment when he comes home and was it the oldest daughter that tells him one of the or it might have been eve that tells him that you know you, you better leave because they're mad and he opens up I think to see his i think it's sicily that tells him that yes sicily tells him that so he, he 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 goes into the the study to see who's mad and he sees that it's his wife his sister and his mother and he's like man they're always mad you know and it's just like this is par for the course don't worry about it because he he knows already the lines that he's going to feed his wife he knows what he's going to say to his mom, even if his mom doesn't agree with him. Like, there's a, there's a lot of tall tales being told. Yeah, and I think, too, this, this movie plays really interestingly with gender. 
the fact that Samuel L. Jackson's character is so confident and so masculine, I think is what I'm going for. You know, he's the guy that butter would just melt in your mouth, his mouth. It's it's that concept of he can fix everything with a wink and a smile. And I mean, that's that's a real interesting angle, especially from the the African-American experience, you know, where you're especially in films where you're dealing so often with stereotyping. I, I love that this is a seemingly upwardly mobile family living in the South in the in the 60s in this time period that would you we naturally assume, especially through film, was inhospitable. And I love the fact that the fear is not racial in the sense that you're not waiting for, you know, the clan to show up or anything like that. It's the fact that it's this real humanizing story about a family and the dad just happens to good or bad. He is still a cheat. He's still flawed, but the the issue has nothing to do with their race. It has to do with the fact that they're just people. Yeah. And I, I would say a lot of the fear comes from the, the spiritual aspect of, of the film because they are a family of faith for the most part but you also have his sister who i guess is able to see the future or able to through palm reading or energy transfer is able to to tell people like either what ails them or where their missing family members are and what has happened to them but she also doesn't like diane carroll's character who's more of the traditional or I shouldn't say traditional, but more of the old school mystic that can, you know, read what's going on with you in, in the bones and stuff. So a lot of the fear comes from, I guess, um, fortunes that have been told that are, haven't come about yet and, and how that impacts everyone around them. And I also think it's fascinating that in this type of film, you have a character of like Louis, who's a, a man about town, fraternized with women. But then you also realize that that trait kind of runs in the family. Because Moselle, his sister, who has been cursed with the fact that she's lost, I think, three husbands. Yeah. Uh, early on in, in this film, you realize that it wasn't that, oh, poor her, that, you know, she just had bad luck with men. You realize that some of the, some of that loss was due to her fooling around as well. You know, and she's very much like her brother, but I think she at least is able to realize the, the, the harm that she, she does. Yeah, the the Debbie Morgan character of Moselle is probably my favorite because it's it's interesting to watch the fact that she is this black widow, quote unquote. And when she sees the Diane Carroll character, there's this implication. Again, it's it's what I find so fascinating and so relatable about this movie, regardless of, of race or gender, is that Moselle is told that she's going to die alone, you know, which is the fear that every woman has because society has tell, told them that's the ultimate sign of failure. But Moselle is a romantic. You know, she talks about the relationship she's had with these men and how one was her true love and, you know, one was just okay. And when so when she finally meets the, the Vondi Curtis Hall character, she wants it to be, she, she doesn't want power. She doesn't want anything special. She just wants this guy to live. And at the end of the movie, you know, it's the implication that it's life in a nutshell. You know, it's the fact that, okay, there's a possibility he could die. I choose to believe that's not going to happen. But, you know, there's this this humanizing effect. And I think Debbie Morgan just is, is fantastic in terms of the fact that she's 
the character that believes in mysticism the most, but she's often the most rational. Yes, yeah, that is a very good point. Because there's a, a whole plot point, essentially, where Lynn Whitfield's character, the, their mother, Roz, hears that, what is it, a child is drowned or something, and that she believes there's a premonition that, that a child's going to be killed. And she assumes it's going to be one of her children, so she makes them all stay in the house for, I think, like the whole summer. And so you're watching watching these characters kind of deal with having to having a mother who is kind of a zealot about things, even though she is supposed to be kind of the voice of reason. So there's a lot of irony there. And in that situation, too, it was fun watching the kids essentially go stir crazy and, and torture each other. But you also realize that for a lot of this film, the the kids are the ones who almost have to see things as an adult or well i guess in the case of sicily she wants to be grown and she tries to act grown even though she can't necessarily see all the ramifications of that but you have eve who at times almost seems like the grown-up in in the house when everything all the chaos is breaking loose and she's the one that will be asking the sensible questions so it, it makes sense that her and moselle would connect on the level that they do because they they are probably the most rational in terms of seeing things for what they what they truly are yeah i i love lynn woodfield in this movie there's there's a moment where eve says that her mother's the most beautiful woman in the world and i totally believe that <laughs> Again, you don't get movies where there's such beauty in in black women. Old school, like old school Hollywood beauty. In, in this movie, the costuming and the way that the characters look, just it takes me back to like Dorothy Dandridge and, you know, Ethel Waters, those types of movies. Um, Josephine Baker, too, is in there. So it's very old school grace and elegance. And and the fact that Cicely, played by Megan Good, is very much of the new school. You know, she wants to go out. She wants to get her hair done. And I think what makes this movie so fascinating is that a lot of how you approach it, or at least how I approach it, has to do with seeing other films and kind of knowing the world that we've created. So, like, Cicely's relationship with her dad could be completely innocent when you watch it. But I think depending on your own relationship with your dad, you can see it as a little odd that they are remarkably close, which does lead Eve to assume that something untoward has happened between the two of them. But then you can just as easily watch it and assume that something that's just, you know, their relationship, their close father-daughter. So I, the movie really plays, and especially in these times, with what we're seeing now with, you know, the Me Too movement and all of that, the ambiguity and, and the, the concept that maybe what has happened is something that is in between their stories and that we'll never know. It just, it, it I think you can, t you can tell a lot about, about a person by making them watch this and asking them what they believe at the end of it yeah i agree and i think for, for me watching this film i was reflecting on the the various stages of my life like from when i first saw this film and you know the, uh, the multiple times in the past i had watched it and then now me watching it as a as a father and it that relationship there was times where i'm watching it now and i'm thinking no it, it is fairly innocent I, I like i can see she just wants her her father's attention effects like all the kids seem to be vying for their father's affection and i think partly it's because the father is constantly out on business you know and he's not necessarily the the homebody 
like the mother is so when he's around you know they they want to be the apple of his eye because even eve at the beginning says you know you you always dance with the older sister you never dance with me you know they all they all want that time but then at the same time seeing how, the lengths that um sicily goes to 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 almost look like her mother and essentially try and take that position feeling that she's grown enough and and understands the the way of the world and she's completely misread everything and just how that unfolds it's you know it, it gives you the heebie-jeebies at times but as you said it's done in such a fascinating way that you're kind of going back and forth as you watch it. and especially if you know what if you've seen the film before and you know what's coming it's that whole push and pull that lemons does so well you know that always kind of keeps you on your toes well all of it kind of comes together with eve and her ultimate relationship and the decisions that she makes regarding her father you know the the emphasis on fate and the emphasis on religion even moselle's story about about how her first husband died because he was shot by by her lover i mean it really creates this sense of history and lineage and the concept of that these this, these stories have been lived before and that they'll they'll live again, that nothing ever really dies. And all of it kind of comes together at the beginning when they say that Eve's Bayou was named and, and Eve was named after, what is it, the black slave of a white man. They had a relationship and he gave her the plot of land. And and watching that as as an adult, I think you especially in these times with how we look at race and gender, you're kind of watching it like that wasn't something that's a romantic gesture. You know, you still have that power imbalance. You still have that slave element. And the fact that she's, you know, the the woman who has founded this this land that they live on, you know, it's not your lover giving you a gift of land. It's the guy that's probably assaulted you your whole life gave you this as a parting gesture. Yeah, she. I think it was like she had she had saved his life right. at one moment, and the gift was the land. But then she still, I think, popped out like ten kids yeah, for him or, exactly. or something like that. Yeah. So you're you're watching, and, and it it kind of translates back in the relationship with with Louis and and his kids it's the fact that he he might have been a totally nice guy but the way he responds to love and his his care his children doesn't make him a good person just because he shows them affection his his actions speak louder than anything else and i think what what makes eve so frustrated and upset and angry, especially at the end when she makes the bargain that she wants him to die, is that he's proven himself to be, like, in her eyes, like any other man, you know? He's he's supposed to be special. He, he's supposed to be different. And, you know, I, I can't say that I disagree with her in certain regards, because I think as, as, a, as a young girl, when you realize that your father kind of sucks, it is a very traumatic experience. I, I can't say I've gone to the lengths that she did, but, you know, it is, it is this moment where, you, you know, you kind of realize that your heroes ha are, are just people. It fits well with the line. I think it was Moselle that, that said something to the effect of um, our lives are, are a series of great disappointments. Yeah, and I loved that scene, especially when she is when she says that because she's already off in her own world, thinking back to the you know the past lovers. Because you see like the this, the three spirits coming to her, and she's and she even at one moment looks at Eve and goes, "Oh, I, I forgot you were still here." 
you know, and you, you have a lot of individuals who are are trapped up in, in their own minds and lives because they've realized that their their life has turned out to be somewhat of a disappointment. Like, you know, you've got this family that's well off living in a community where black people have their own businesses, you know, they're all dressed well and their lives are still having tons of problems. And as you said, there's the disappointment of knowing that your your folks and we, we all have it, that your folks aren't the, the heroes that you thought they were. And when you realize that they're just average Joes and then you start to think, well, does that mean that my life is going to going to be average? And a lot of the characters Eve herself, when she when she goes to to get the the voodoo doll that she thinks she's going to get and um, Cicely, when she tries to make adventures on the farm, they have a lot of grand visions of what things should be. But the reality is far more complex and, and painful. And it it just adds a, a very interesting layer to the, the numerous interactions that we see in this film. Yeah, there's, again, something like, what is it, The Fallen Idol, if anybody's seen that movie. It's a British film, and it's a very similar type of story to this. But it is also is a testament. Journey Smollett is so good in this movie. She just she steals the scenes that she's in. She's so fantastic. Um, but I mean, much of her her actions in this movie are just as manipulative. Where where Cecily is manipulative in her actions, there's this act of rebellion. Eve is a lot like her dad in that she's able to twist words and and cadence to her own ends. There's a scene where she's talking to Lenny Moreau, the Oh yeah, Maddie's Maddie's husband, the exactly. other woman's husband. And she's she's kind of emphasizing like, oh, how does your wife like being home alone all the time? You know, my dad's the same way. She's you know, he's the lonely type. Yeah, you know, she's very deliberate in her actions. And and, and I think it's a it's a testament to how Cassie Lemons works so well with actors because Journey Small is acting opposite an adult. And both of them are giving just phenomenal performances. And so at the end, when when Eve discovers kind of the, the consequences of her actions, it's such a it's such a heartbreaking moment because, you know, these are all especially Eve. Eve is a good person for the most part. And even her dad, you know, these are just all flawed people that make a series of bad decisions. And and the implication I think Lemon's script is making is that these bad decisions fuel generations. The fielding generations I think is also interesting in terms of the, how this film ends because we realize that there's essentially we're shown three different versions or I guess two and a half versions of what happens between um, Cicely and the and the father and then you have uh, Louis writing the note to his sister bearing his soul and saying you know I've done bad things but I would never do that child I would never hurt my children in that way and they bury that note in the water you know, to kind of keep that particular version of events hidden. And it, it took me back to that moment when Cicely is leaving to go away for a bit. And she has that almost, I call it the Jackie O moment, just because of how well she's dressed and with the glove raises her finger to tell Eve to, you know, don't, don't let my secret out. And here we see, again, the secret is being buried in the water, but you know that it's still there's the ramifications are still gonna go through on to the next generations like that's something that they will always that's a scar that they will always have to to deal with in in some fashion and i found the way how 
secrets are buried and how they essentially haunt a lot of the characters and again favorite scenes is with um, Moselle when she's talking to Eve and, and they're looking in the mirror and then you get the story of how her her first husband or second husband got shot by the lover and I love that scene just because a lot of the scenes with Moselle actually there's mirrors and there's always reflections and how Lemons uses that to have the characters at a distance but also bring them in and like there's just a lot of pain and hurt so even though Moselle finds a new man towards the end you know there's still going to be grief like those ghosts from the past those hidden secrets linger on through Eve like Eve's carrying a lot of will be carrying a lot of secrets as she goes on with when you brought up the scene with the, the flashback I love how that scene is composed because you have almost like Eve is standing within the mirror within this this flashback to this other time and it's like the past and the present inhabit the same space and and so much of that has to do with you know i I would never consider myself an expert on it but if you've read stuff about kind of like voodoo culture and and how mirrors play into things i mean all of that is there's just so much loaded imagery there's been some great great articles uh, and deconstructions of this movie from right female writers of color and I think it's fantastic because every scene is just loaded with symbolism. It's true, and there's, it may not be right to say, but I was thinking if they were to ever redo this film, and I and I don't recommend they do because I think it's it's perfect the way it is. I kept thinking that for this generation, if they were to redo it, it would essentially be like a modern day Beyonce video in some ways. There's a and lot I, of I, yeah. There's a lot of similarities, or, or at least comparisons to Lemonade that I that I see. Yes, you know, a lot of people will always say, well, with Lemonade and make a lot of reference to um, Julie Dash and Daughters of the Dust, which I completely see, but watching parts of Lemonade, I, was, I kept thinking, well, Eve's Bayou also kind of has the same thing in terms of like taking the past and bringing it to, to the present in a way that it's still kind of haunting, you know, and you, you still, the spirits of, of the ancestors are all kind of interwoven in, in the imagery. So I think, I don't know, I think this film is still very relevant today. And- I, I just want Cassie Lemons to make more movies and the fact that it took her, what was this, 97 98, 99, four years to make The Caveman's Valentine, and then I think another six after that to make Talk to Me. Like, she's only directed four films, which is just shocking to me because she is, I think, one of the landmark women directors of color um, up there with, like, like Dee Rees. I think she fell into the same category that a lot of female directors do and that Hollywood is still very much if you are a female director director of color we need to see three or four films and of those three or four films all need to be financial hits well I I say I say that assuming that Hollywood has has not allowed her to do anything I I just had a discussion with Deborah Granick this morning and she was talking about why is it that I have to come out with movies every couple of years no one ever talks about male directors you know they're just they're deliberate with their choices they're not you know so so maybe maybe Cassie Lemons likes having these long breaks and just wants to make movies when she's inspired but I I want her to make more I I agree I want her to make more as well and that could be uh, a possibility but I don't know something something tells me because with the acclaim that this film got 
and the mixed reaction that Caveman's Valentine got, and especially because I don't think Caveman Valentine's was a financial hit, I think that is what kind of stifled some of the projects. I'm sure she's got plenty of ideas, plenty of stories that she wants to tell, but again, you need funding. I saw a documentary this year called uh, Half the Picture, and it it spoke to several female directors, including Ava DuVernay, um, Miranda July, just a, a wide swath of female directors. And, you know, they're all sharing their stories about being filmmakers in the industry and how everything from like the way how film school is set up in terms of the canon that you're you're taught to the casting agents, the, the short list that actors have for directors they want to work with, it's all geared towards men. A lot of them, even though their stories were, their experiences were, were different, had the same commonality of, I had to fight tooth and nail to make this film, and then I had to make three more films before I even got considered to make X, you know? And there's still Ava DuVernay and I think Catherine Bigelow. You're kind of the de facto, the de facto. The, the de facto, you can make either a, a $100 million or close to $100 million budget film, while the rest are still, you know, struggling with mid-level budget so i i don't know i could be completely wrong but i i feel like cassie lemons falls into that camp i think we forget too how hospitable in the 90s in films at least were at getting black audiences and and had cross again this kind of cross-cultural appeal because a lot of that had to do with the fact that they hot uh, tv discovered this quicker i think than movies but a lot of African-American audiences were watching television at this time, which is why you saw the rise of like the UPN network and this emphasis on programming for quote unquote urban audiences. And you saw that too in films, I think, especially black women led films, some stuff like, like this and waiting to exhale. I think of something like why do fools fall in love, which I think came out the year after this. I saw a lot of movies that had predominantly black casts in the nineties for reasons that I don't really remember. Like, I don't know why I saw waiting to exhale. Maybe because it had Whitney Houston in it. And that was a, that was a fairly big movie. Right. That's so there's that. And you know, why do fools fall in love? Like I was weird and I liked old fifties music. So I saw that, but, but there was this kind of this push towards it. It wasn't marginalizing them into a specific audience. Now I think when you see movies with with black cast, it's for quote unquote black audiences. So that Tyler Perry mentality, you know, so they get less money to advertise. They advertise in very niche areas on very niche channels. So you're not seeing movies with black cast aimed at white audiences anymore which I, I miss because I do think that that's the studio setting these movies up to either make a lot of money and then they're surprised that they make a lot of money, but they don't want to green light any more movies or they don't do a lot of money because there's no marketing behind them and then they can justify the need to not make it. This all ends with them not making more movies. There's two things I want to address there. You, I agree with you, the 90s, and maybe it was because we didn't have streaming services, the you didn't have this option through the internet that if you just want to focus on one particular aspect of entertainment, like you could just immerse yourself in it and close yourself off to the rest of the world. The 90s, especially from a television perspective, was was great for at least having shows that with diverse cast or predominantly uh, minority actors in it. And I, you know, I'm 
remember spending hours, you know, watching like the John Leguizamo show, Living Color, oh, yeah, Martin, yeah. All, like Living Single, you know, before Sex in the City. Hey, you know, there was like tons of shows, but then there was almost like it was a gift and a curse because those shows, especially for networks like Fox and then eventually a few years later, uh, UPN and the WB, they helped get those stations off the ground. Yeah. They helped make them money to the point where they started to get uh, a bit more revenue and then it was like okay well let's sprinkle in you know whatever the tracy allman show the simpsons what have you and then once those networks took off it was like okay we don't need you anymore yeah they got the networks went gentrified they just completely gentrified a lot of it and i look back now at a lot of the because we're in we're in an age of nostalgia the a lot of those people that grew up watching the shows that we were talking about are now in positions where they're either talking to executives some of them might even be running studios companies themselves and the nostalgia factor and the the pulling back of like Roseanne and Mad About You and you know there's tons of talk of like well would they bring back friends and a lot of the shows that they want to bring back are all shows that are predominantly white for the for the most part you know and yeah there's I think there was actually an article written about when are we going to start redo rebooting all the African-American white shows from the 90s which which yeah I I watched all of the, I was a little white girl growing up in the middle of suburbia and I watched in Living Color and had wonderful time. And I didn't get half the jokes. I actually watched a rerun of it the other day because I think, I forget what channel shows them, but I was watching a rerun and I was like, wow, I should not have been watching this as a child, but it's still really funny. Yeah, I, I think that go, to bring it all back to Cassie Lemons, we don't make movies like Eve's Bayou anymore. You know, we don't. And I wish we did because this is a movie that has such impact if you're of the community that it's depicting. But it's still just as relatable it's like it's like call me by your name you know you can watch call me by your name as a heterosexual person and love it as i do but it has that extra mile if you are that marginalized community part of the reason why they don't make films like this anymore is just because good storytelling is is not good storytelling as valued um is not valued and i think it's also again that that mentality that only black audiences are going to see it and the the belief to go with that that there aren't enough black audiences i guess to make back their budget and again how many times when these movies come out in the middle of February they're the only thing to go see and then they're number one I, I think we're still falling over ourselves at how much mo money Acrimony made this year Acrimony is not a good movie but it was marketed really well and audiences went and saw that I I paid money to go see that movie I have not seen a Tyler Perry movie ever in my life and I've I paid money to go see that. And I can tell you that the audience composition was just as much white people as it was black people. And that's proving that there are audiences for this. There, there, there is. And Hollywood is just because it's so white, they don't want to justify that. I know we're bringing it back to the film itself, but there was the second point I want to bring was actually the comment you said about Tyler Perry, like how nowadays all we get is kind of Tyler Perry type films. And I was watching this film and one of my notes was, this is the film that Tyler Perry has been trying to make for years. Yes. And what I mean by that is he... He makes his films in a way that they they touch on a lot of issues. They, they talk about faith. There's usually, or in, in most cases, there's some type of crime or adultery, incest, you know, some grave slight on the family. He crams a lot of those things, but there's also, the, the religion plays also a, a huge chunk of those films, and also how you look at family and legacy. And I find that 
in his a lot of his films he 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 tries almost too hard he throws a little too much melodrama whereas this film touches on all of those things so effortlessly and as as we pointed out you can take any aspect of this film if you just want to focus on memory if you want to focus on the family uni if you want to focus on uh relationships children community and it works with a lot of his films i find your brain's kind of going through the checklist opposed to just wrapping yourself in it again i'm not going to knock tyler perry i've even thought of picking a film or two to discuss on this show because i do think especially in this day and age he serves a valuable role and he's a constant reminder of how far to one direction a lot of the studios have gone and the fact that he's got his own big studio in atlanta and he, he keeps turning out these films you know regardless of what we think of them and they're still making money because he realizes that there's an audience for this and executives for some reason still can't figure out that there's an audience for all films like regardless if they're great works of art like this if they are trashy if they're comedies action whatever you know there there is a market and even something like a wrinkle in time is important <laughs> yes that's true and, and that's a film that like you know my wife and i have issues with but we're still glad it was there to you know to go and see it and you know you, you should be able to have films that have diversity representation and it's okay if not everyone likes it if you, if you don't like a wrinkle in time that's fine if you love it that's fine too because that's how art is you know art brings out various emotions in different people we analyze it we it helps shape us but a lot of times the powers that be say well no it needs to be for the marginalized people or if you're asian latino what have you this is what you have to do for us you have to give us these numbers whereas other people are like no okay that film that adam sandler film didn't do well that's okay netflix we, we've got three more that he's coming down the pipe with you know and it's just i don't know it, it's it's frustrating but i still hold up hope that one day things will change i i agree let's end things there i think that was a great discussion christian where can folks find you i am on twitter at journeys underscore Film. You can also download my thoughts on feminism and film at citizendame.podbean.com. I also do a classic film podcast called Ticklish Business, which is at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. Excellent. And you can reach me on Twitter at smallmind, or if you want to contact the show, you can reach us on Twitter at changingreelsac. Also, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Modern Superior website, wherever you listen to us. And we'd appreciate if you can rate and review the show, because all feedback is good feedback. And remember, you can change the conversation about diversity in cinema one reel at a time. It's been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.